July 5th, 2011. It's the Watt from Pedro Show.
Watch for Pedro show, except not in Pedro, uh, here in Lisbon, Portugal, and on a Tuesday, day of the fourth, uh, after the fourth. Uh, how'd you? I got a guest here. I should uh, introduce you people. Uh, how do you like being told you are? You can whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> It's Larry, <laughs> and he's on the drums. Uh, 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 some people call him Toby Dammit, uh, but uh, he had to come to the rescue and uh, help out Stooges with these gigs, and he did, and he's doing a great job. I should tell you, we start off the show with uh, John Coltrane doing two, two bass hit, an alternate take, and then we heard This Ain't the Fucking 1980s by the Super Fast Girly Show. Who, uh, yeah, those cats were at the gig in uh, Chester. Oh, yeah, they were there. Okay. He gave me his thing there. His name was Phil. Wow, nice. Good people. And uh, that was your second time. Yeah, that was the second show. Yeah, first one was the day before in uh, Tunbridge. Yeah, that was the frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> frying pan. Uh, yeah, I want to... Start off with how you started off. How did you get into music? What's your earliest music memories? Well, like listening? I mean, you or know... did I, you start playing before you ever heard anything? No, no, no. I was listening to rock and roll and country music and everything way before I ever tried playing, tried, tried playing an instrument. You know, like, I, I liked a lot of... Uh, and I discovered punk rock and stuff when I, when I was pretty young. I, I grew up in East Tennessee where you couldn't really get access to... to uh, you know, music outside of that area so easily, you know, and not like today where you can just, you know, access anything. Back in, in those days, I mean, I knew about, you know, bluegrass music and country music that, that my parents were listening to there in East Tennessee. And, and then I got curious, you know, going to the record stores and stuff like that around outside of Knoxville, you know, and I, and I found like weird stuff, you know, like I, I found like Parliament Records really re when I was really young and started listening to George Clinton. <laughs> and I got really into that. And then, uh, and, then, and then one day I found like a Sex Pistols record, you know, which I, I, I just thought, wow, it looks so crazy, you know. And I, and I checked that out and, and um, you know, I discovered Sex Pistols and, and Stooges, you know, that Raw Power record. You know, that cover, it's just the covers, you know, I just thought, wow, you know, what looks so crazy, you know, what is that, you know, so I, I found that stuff, 
and I got a hold of that stuff pretty quick, and so I knew about that, and and of course a lot of the popular heavy rock and roll that was that was around there. Did but, you play in school? Like yeah. have a music class? I well, I did. I got into that in seventh grade. Um, I got in that because my best friend, basically, uh, my best buddy there was a drummer, and he uh, he had an invitation to go to like summer camp, you know, because he was about to, he was about to get old enough to go into the marching band, and so they had summer camp. So the idea was like he he was like, look, you got to get into this thing so we can go hang out together at summer camp. So I thought. Well, I don't know what it is, or I don't even know anything about that stuff. But yeah, I mean, why not? We can hang out. So, so I joined the band, uh, which in seventh grade was more or less like a classical music operation. Yeah. And and I I didn't know anything about anything, and uh, I got in there, and the teacher was uh, was a really really cool guy. His name was Ken Jarnigan, and he. Um, you know, he sort of like made me do like a little audition kind of thing, and then sort of like uh, start teaching. Audition, but you didn't ever. I didn't know anything, but just like you know, show me how to like you know hold sticks yeah, yeah. and and like you know. Anyway, for one, for for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, I just kind of latched on to this whole scene and yeah. and just kind of ate it alive. You it know, was like, classical. I remember school band too. Yeah. Did you did you relate it with the the records you were listening to? Not no. not at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I was really intimidated, but uh, but somehow I understood it all really fast, and I and I really took to it and started studying Bach, and before long I was studying. Uh, Bartok and Berlioz and all kinds of other stuff, and all of a sudden I turned into this uh, sight reading, you know, nightmare from hell. I could I could play anything, and and I became like this guy's sort of prize prize student, and he really kind of took me under his this wing. Is like junior high. Huh? Yeah, yeah, and he he was like he realized that that uh, I kind of had something for this, and I couldn't explain it, but I could I could really do it, and. Uh, so he started in, entering me into all these competitions and stuff statewide, and and I would win everything. You know, I was I, I started studying timpani, and and I could play all Bartok, and and you know when I was twelve, you know I was playing yeah, Bartok yeah, bar yeah. and and Bach, and was studying all this stuff. Same time when I'd go home, I'm listening to the Sex Pistols and the there's no real and, gigs, right? Well, there there are classical performances. I would get into these. No, I mean of the rock gigs. You're not really going. No, 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 not until I was fourteen. And uh, but when so I was the music you're seeing live is these symphonies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really into it, and yeah. I even I even studied. You know, I studied Berlioz and and their lives and everything. You know, I really got into it, and um, and I you know I kind of had a career building in in a way, and I wound up getting a a full scholarship. You know, when I got out of school, you know, for to to go and study you know, uh, classical music and teach yeah. and all this kind of stuff, but. When I was 14, and I had a private instructor who had been teaching me just snare drum, classical snare drum and all this stuff. And then at a certain point, he was like, have you ever played a drum set? And I said... Oh, because in the band. No, it was... Like, standing just, up with a snare yeah, there was, and I'm, some I'm, I'm, I'm studying Bach, you know. And he, I mean, he knew I could do all this stuff, but he was like, have you ever played a drum set? Like and no I, trap. Yeah, yeah, never. Never. I had no interest. I, I've seen classical guys. Yeah. They have like... These things set up. Yeah, I had no interest in that. Okay. You know, I, I never bothered. I mean, I couldn't afford to buy a drum set. You must saw on the album covers that some dudes were playing. Oh, yeah, I mean, I love listening to it, but yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up really poor. I couldn't afford yeah, to buy. Sure. Buying a drum set was like something, you know, like it's buying instruments is like... I know, D. Boone's brother played a 
when he played in the bedroom, his little brother played, and he just had a snare drum, yeah. and he put a book on it, yeah. and that would be the kick drum. Yeah, you know, a little metal TV I think stand. I, that would be the cymbals. I probably had like a lone snare drum from the school, but yeah. that, that was it. Yeah. Know? And, uh, but then, so I had this private teacher that, that I'd been working with, and then a certain, you know, and he had a drum set there in his place, and he's like, Have you ever played drum set? I said, No. He's like, Well, let's, let's, let's like fool around with that. So he, he sat me down and kind of like started, you know, teaching me how to like, you know, expand all the things I had been studying, but to do it on on the on you know across all these other things and using my legs and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. And um, yeah, because you're standing up, right? Yeah. You weren't using legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I did that and and you know quickly got into it. And he you know he was teaching upstairs in a in a music store, and he was like, look, you know, we got to work something out with your parents. So he. Uh, he had a meeting with my parents and oh, get you trapped. Yeah, he had a meeting with my parents and the owner of the music store, and he was like, "Look, he kind of served as a conduit to like negotiate like a kind of payment trip, a, a payment, you know, like a low payment thing." Yeah, yeah. And he was like, "We got to get this guy like a little drum set, something decent, and they don't have any money, and let's like work it out." Yeah, and, yeah. Um, That's and he, very he cool. What's his he, cat's name? Uh, oh, shit, what was his name? <laughs> no, because not yeah. just kind of between the store and your parents, yeah. actually with you and your future as music. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll have to think about you that. Remember the teacher, though. <laughs> I'll have to remember his okay. name. But he, uh, but he actually got he got this worked out, and uh, and I got the kit and continued like taking lessons with him, and uh, you know, of course, that accelerated at a rapid pace, and and before long, once I had this kit, of course, it combined with my knowledge of, of punk bands and all this kind of stuff and all these other and my buddies in school when they found out that i had a drum set then i wound up like play with you yeah i wound up getting you know that was the magic thing you know like then we wound up putting a band together and um, when you started on the trap did you have some kind of drummers you kind of like maybe i tried something that he's doing oh and like a role model or a little bit well i don't know i mean it, at that I like point Mitch Mitchell or, or i like you didn't know really as persons. I, I, I didn't really. I, I, I didn't know much. I didn't really know. I, I can't say that I want to be like that guy or yeah. that guy or that guy. I mean, I know what I was listening to, but I don't. I don't think I knew enough about any of those yeah, people yeah, yeah, to yeah. say like you know. I, I mean, I can't be a John Bonham or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, I knew about all this kind of stuff and Peter Chris and all yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of shit, <laughs> you know. But I just thought you know, I I don't know what I was thinking, but but I knew I you know I could play the that that drum kit yeah. so. I got in a band when I was 14. Influence, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, was, I don't know. I was just listening to, like, de degenerate culture in general. Yeah, things. right, right. You didn't realize, uh, hadn't gotten to personalizing, like, the, yeah. the guys working the machines Yeah, yet. yeah, yeah. It was all sounds. Yeah, yeah. That's how it was for me for a while, too. Yeah. It was all sounds I couldn't really separate. Yeah. I couldn't hear bass. On a lot of records. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, it wasn't Until, it wasn't like, Mitch Creedence records. Yeah, I couldn't hear the bass parts for anything. I could hear Ant Whistle. I could yeah. hear Jamerson on the yeah. Motowns, Larry Graham on the Sly. Yeah, uh, uh, Bruce and the Cream. Right. A lot of the England guys, I could hear the bass, but man, it was mysterious. To yeah. Me. Well, yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. You know, I. I you know, I, I was I was lucky enough though. This band uh, that I got into, they they got a they got a gig in a in a punk club in in Knoxville, opening up for a popular local band, and so they snuck. You know, we we took the gig, and uh, I was so young. You know, I was too young to be 
legally allowed in that place. So they had to sneak me in the back door for the sound check, and then I had to go back out the back door right after. And then, uh, and then I could come in for the gig, like right before we went on. I had, they snuck me in the door, and then right after the last song, I had to get out of the back door. Wow. You know, so I mean, but I, but I did it. You know, I was, yeah. I was 14, but I got that I got that yeah. taste. You know, I got that taste for like that excitement of of being in those punk clubs and and the lights and the smell yeah. of, the smell of beer and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, dirty carpet and nasty stages and all that. It's like you know I, that was my first kind of kind of. And what kind of songs were they playing? Did they write them or were they covers? I think I think that first band we we were doing covers and, and then we wrote some we had some and it was a punk band. Because our whole thing was about copying records. We didn't know yeah. anybody in our town. Yeah. Until until punk was when we met people who wrote their own songs. We were doing like more like punk rock cover versions of of like early rock and roll stuff, you know. We were so. trying to copy the records best we could. Yeah. We had, really had a tragic experience of people booing us and throwing us off stage mm. and throwing shit at us. Yeah. <laughs> Before punk came. Yeah, yeah, punk came, that happened too, yeah, yeah, in yeah, a way. Right, but right. One time, D. Booms, we played a high school thing where after the football game and Carson beat us bad. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I was in a bad mood already. It's one of these portable trailer things at the jetty. Yeah. And uh, maybe three, four songs into it, man. They're just throwing... Uh, everything they could, and the singer man, God, he ended up hanging himself. But yeah. he did—he was in Alice Cooper and stuff, and uh-huh. did this fake blood thing. And uh-huh. the, the boss running the thing thought, "Whoa, he got hit in the mouth with the rocks and oh. shut some power off." Oh, I was barefoot, and uh, he just swung it the other way, the ground. And I got all shocked. Oh Boone's no! Pop come through the crowd in a pickup truck, goes up to the front of his day. And gave, we get in there and got us out. We, oh. it was six, we were 16. It was terrible. Man, that's a disaster. Yeah, there was a lot of this. <laughs> we didn't know enough to call them character builders. But that's great that you, you your first one was affirmation. Yeah, I mean, well, that was my first, you know, first bite of the tablet, really, yeah. you know, because, I mean, once once I got the taste of that, that was sort of like, that just like, that just like, turned my life you know i mean i i continued this whole like classical thing you know like all through through, until i got out of high school you know i kind of saw it through all the way to there and then um but i at that point i was playing in all these bands and stuff and then i went into college for for, i think for one semester on this big classical scholarship and everyone was really excited and supporting me and it was going to be all this big career and all this kind of stuff and you know, I I just threw it all like, threw it all away. Oh, yeah, and I was. What happened like, to that band? Did you continue with them? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, I mean, that lasted a year or something, and then I, you know, I got tossed around in a few local bands here and there. I kept trying to get something going, but finally, I had one that was going really good, and we all moved in together. We were living together, oh, to- wow, totally yeah. inspired by by the Stooges, you know, because. You know, I'd read that that I Need More book yeah, yeah. From, from Iggy, so and I always thought, yeah, you know, a band should all live together. You know, they should all live together, and everybody's got their own bedroom. You know, and they come <laughs> down and you know have breakfast together and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's like and a family. You know? you. Yeah, and you know, so we kind of had that kind of thing going, and um, you know, and I thought, uh, oh, you would tell me about Buddy Rich. Was this around fourteen? 
Uh, yeah, it would have been around, yeah, around that. Well, maybe 16 or so, 15 or 16. And so. you go see him play. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he played, he, he was playing in, uh, in the Knoxville area there, and, and uh, my new classical teacher at that time had been friends with him or was an acquaintance with him and was, was close enough to get me passes, you know, into, into the show and, and a backstage pass to meet him after the show. So I got to sit there and watch him in, in person, which was something I'll never forget. And uh, blur. the blur, the only human blur I've ever seen in my life, the hummingbird, <laughs> he turned into a hummingbird. He, the only person I've ever seen who could move their physical form so fast, their limbs so fast that they actually disappeared. You know, they actually, you could only see his, his abdomen <laughs> just standing station, Forex. just sitting stationary on, on his, <laughs> behind his drums, but you could not see his arms anymore. Because he he was he would be moving so fast, but he wasn't moving his his central. You sure. Know, yeah, it was just his arms, and it was like like a pillar. Yeah, it was like a like a magical. I mean, it was like a, you know karate. I don't know. It's like some sort of like incredible, incredible physical feat. What he could do, and uh, I'd never seen that before, or never since either. And so you. You wanted to see him after the game. I got, I got to meet him. You know, after the show, I thought, okay, I've got my piece of paper. I'm going to go, like, get his autograph. And, and I think, oh, this is it. This is my big chance to meet Buddy Rich. And I go back. And at, at that point, I had not been warned of, of the character <laughs> that I was about to encounter. But, uh, you know, I went back, and he was already on his old, like, tour bus, you know. You know, it was parked back there. And there was a line of kids already at the door, and I could see like the old bus doors would open, and one person would come on, and then another person would come off, and it was one at a time kind of thing. And um, like the Pope. <laughs> yeah, like the Pope. And uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, my turn was coming up, and I was really anxious. I don't know, I must have been 15 or 16. And uh, so my turn, the guy, the the guy comes off the bus, the bus door is open, and, and it's my turn. And I, and I hear this voice yelling, going, next! And I think, oh, and I'm like, who is that? You know, like, and I go, up on, I go up on the bus, and, and there he is. He's already in his, his nice, like, fluffy bathrobe, like, beautiful, sitting at, sitting at his little picnic table in the, in the bus, you know. And I give him my, my paper, and I'm like, oh, Mr. Rich, you know, that was one of the most awesome things I've ever seen in my life. You know, I, I, I play drums, and what, a, what an inspiration to me. You know, I've never seen anyone in my life do things like that. You know, I'm never going to forget it. You're, you know, you're my hero. Thank you so much. And all this, you know, I'm just, I'm just you know, pleading, you know. Just a teenager, you know. And he, anyway, he signs my he signs my paper, Buddy Rich, and he hands it to me. And he looks at me in the face, and he goes, "Next." <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, I was looking at him like in trauma, like I just turned around, you know, and like, "Yeah, let's listen to some Buddy on the tour bus."
back inside. I've got to hear 110 fucking cents for fiction. Or I'll leave you here. I'll take you as far as he's right, and you've got it. Try me. Try me in the next step and see if you get away with one thing of shit. You try it. I'll fire you on a fucking fast end.
keep your fucking mouth shut. Right now. Or I'll close it for you. Keep it shut. Or try me. I didn't believe it, try Just shut up. Well, I just appreciate you know, being taught to you like a human being. I try to talk to you like a human being, and you talk back all the time. I keep your fucking mouth shut, or I'll show you what it's like. That's okay. all. Okay, but you have no right to threaten. I'm not threatening you, I'm telling you. You don't want to do what I want in my band, I'm telling you. Okay. Just shut up. I will. All right. Get that understood by everybody. I want him off. I don't want him on the bad thing on the two bones.
from Pedro Show. Uh, that was Basho with Funky Monkey. And before that, we had Chloe Mons with uh, Three Days in Banjul. Before that, Lace by Mel. And started off with the Motivational Pep Talks live on the tour bus with Mr. Buddy Rich. Mr. Larry, little did you know that he was not really a one-word man. It wasn't just next. He had a bigger vocabulary. I think he said motherfucker 132 times. Some dude counted on that thing there. Well, I remember seeing him on stage, and he was living up to those tapes you had there. Because uh, I saw him on stage before I ever heard those tapes. But I remember during the show, he was so cruel to, to his band. When you know, Of course, he was in the center of the whole thing. <laughs> center front was Buddy Rich well lit and a big riser and then and then the, the horns were off, to, were off to the side right and you know if if one of those guys like you know when when they when one of them would take a solo they you know when the solo would come up they, they'd stand up you know out of out of their out of their chair yeah, like old days yeah like the old days and and that guy's going to take a solo and if it wasn't good enough for him he would yell like he he had a microphone you know they were going through a pa at that point and he had a microphone he'd be like 
is that the best you can do? Let's change. You know, like, it totally humiliates. During the tune. Yeah. While the guy was soloing, like, like cut him off. You know? <laughs> You're done. Like, You're totally humiliate the guy, you know? Like, mm. And, you know, and, um, you know, and then they go into the change, you know? I mean, he, he, was, he was controlling that, that band with a whip, you know? An iron whip. There's several approaches to music. Uh, two of these things I played here, these ladies, uh, you had something to do with. Well, yeah, both these ladies. Um, these are both uh, Mel and Chloe Mons. They're, they're both French women. Uh, uh, these records, Mel's record came out in France in uh, this past April, and Chloe's record just came out in May. And, uh, yeah, uh, Mel found me. Uh, she she came to see a show that I did with Jesse Evans a couple of years ago, in her hometown in Metz, and uh, and she contacted me and she actually came to Berlin and kind of sought me out to to help her make this record and and uh, produce this record, and um, she didn't have a band or anything like that, and so she really was kind of starting from scratch, but she had her songs, and the first stuff she played me was was. Uh, very, very much kind of gun club influence stuff, and she was a big fan of Jeffrey, obviously, and and um, and I said, well, look, you know, one of my really good friends is, is Kid Congo Powers, and he, he's just living in Washington D.C. And I mean, if you want, you know, I mean, I realized the stuff was good enough to, to that he would take it seriously, and and so I, I I contacted him and asked him if he would be into doing it, and. Um, we decided we decided to do it together. So we, I put this band together. It was me and, and Kid, Kid Congo Powers and and Falker Snyder, the bass player from Calexico, because he just lived down in Munich and he and I were in touch a lot. So we put this pretty interesting band together for her. And then she uh, she would come to Berlin uh, from France and like stay off and on. I got her apartment in, in Berlin and and we just put this record together. And we put a lot of work into this thing. She's she's toured all over the United States as a as a solo artist. Like like she'll I mean she'll she'll go around with just a, a guitar and yeah. and she'll play all over the United States anywhere. Yeah. And she's done it many times. She's played all down in the South and 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 all in rural USA. And it's pretty rare for a for a French artist to have the guts to go do that by themselves. She'll travel alone. Respect her. Yeah, and uh, but from doing that, she has this incredible uh, perception and understanding of, of American culture and, and history of American music, and she's really, really into it. She's very, yeah. she's a great musician. She's a really good banjo player and a really good guitarist, and and she's really into like Harlem jazz and bluegrass and Southern California punk rock and old like delta blues and all, all kinds of stuff and she really knows what she's talking about we could talk all night long about about the history of where stuff comes from and um so i i really kind of hit it off with her musically you know we really i really and i know a lot about all this stuff too and and so we were able to communicate really well musically you know about like every song she wanted to have every song different yeah and she wanted to basically take a stab at all these musical genres that that she was talking about and uh, which is really brave for a european artist to even try that 
So we did it. We we tried Harlem jazz. We we do some rockabilly. We do some country, like proper Nashville country. We do some punk rock. Uh, we do. I mean, we were all over them, all over the place with this thing. And she did such a great job with it. And you know, of course, Kid, who is a you know a great guitarist, also knows a lot about all these different styles. Yeah. And so does Falker. And we were able to to make a really, I think, a really authentic take on all these songs. It's a great album, and uh, uh, it's not available in the United States. I really it's hope called that Western we, Spaghetti. Yeah, which I thought was the perfect name because it's her it's her take on Americana. It's her take on American culture. So yeah. it's like a Western Spaghetti, and uh, I, I think it's just it's a great album. Well, maybe she's got a website or something, and people can go. Yeah, there, there's. I think she's got a MySpace page, and well, she they, could, she, uh, maybe they can get the record though. You know, people get them online now. They yeah, know. yeah, I know that. Yeah, it's it's only it's only available in France for the moment, but uh, I'm I'm trying to help her find a, a, a way to get it uh, over to the United States because that's really where it should be. So. Uh, well, look for and then here, uh, Chloe. Yeah, well, the, now the other the other woman, her name is Chloe Mons, and uh, this this is a completely different story. She um, she is uh, she's made a couple of records in France before, and uh, she's a famous actress and model in France, and um, and she was also married with with a very famous French uh, artist named Alain Bashun, and uh, Alain passed away a couple of years ago, and. Uh, and she basically was was preparing to make a new record, and a lot, most of this album uh, was uh, there are very personal songs uh, about her relationship with him. And uh, she contacted me and wanted she wanted to make the record uh, together, but she wasn't quite sure where. And she wound up uh, contacting Malcolm Byrne, who is an old friend of mine. I don't know if you know who Malcolm Byrne is, but. Malcolm's he's produced a couple of Emmy Lou Harris records. Uh, he produced a record for Iggy. Uh, I, I got him uh, to, to produce American Caesar, which was the first record that I made with Iggy. And so we, we've been pretty good friends for, well, I think I met Malcolm in around 87. And anyway, she, she contacted him, and he invited us over to do it, and, and that was in upstate New York. So Chloe and myself and, and her guitarist, uh, Jan Peshun, who was Alan Peshun's guitarist, the three of us all went over together and made this record in 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 uh, Malcolm's house. It's the same place where Emmylou Harris had made the two records with him, and uh, it's just in his basement. And we went over there with no uh, no rehearsals or or any preparation of any kind. Actually, I didn't take any instruments or anything. I didn't know what I was going to do, and um, and we went over there. Happy drums. Well. Yeah. Not really. We, I mean, we talked about it, and she kind of, I mean, she sent me like a little demo of her songs alone, and we talked about the style, which was very much like in a sort of John Lee, early John Lee Hooker kind of style of okay. writing, which is more or less like prison blues. And I was like, well, for this kind of stuff, you know, you wouldn't really have drums in this kind of, in this yeah. thing. 
and if you really want to make it like that, you know, like I think we would go more with like you know big pieces of wood or like some big. Oh, pieces. still percussion. <clears throat> percussion, but not drums. Yeah. And uh, so I said, I'm not going to take anything. As we get there, I said, I tell you, when we get there, first day I get there, I'm going to find out where the local junkyard is, and I'm going to go out to the junkyard and I'm going to take apart a truck. And we're going to bring it in there, and I'm just going to beat the hell out of that. And that's what we're going to use. <laughs> and she, she loved that idea. So, so I got there, and um, the, uh, I didn't have to go to the junkyard because I talked to Malcolm about this real quickly. And um, I said, look, I think I basically need a big piece of wood and a big piece of metal. I need, I need a high end and, and low end. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, of course, he's got all these great microphones, all this incredible gear. And anyway, so he had a nice old – he had a beautiful old filing cabinet from World War II out in his garage. And I said, is that thing not so precious to you? <laughs> and he said, no, you can use it. I said, no, I, I – well, I took, I took that as my high end. And that oh. was that was that was my right fist. <laughs> I beat I beat the hell out of it with my right fist. And then the other thing he had, which was fantastic, he had a big old birdhouse hanging on a tree out in his backyard. I mean, really, really big. And I was like, "Can I take that down?" You know. And it was made out of pretty thick plywood and yeah. probably about twenty years old or something. So it was aged. It was a, basically a really big wooden box. And it was perfect. It had a big hole in yeah. the bottom of it for the birds to come in and out of it, or the squirrels. And um, that was perfect. That was for the bass to get out. Yeah. And it was more or less like a big primitive hillbilly uh, cajon, you know, or whatever. <laughs> you know, it was like like a real hillbilly version of one of those things. Yeah. And I beat the hell out of that with my left hand. So yeah. that was my low end and my high end. And, yeah. you know, and I could beat them together, you know. So yeah. we did all this, like, prism blue stuff. And we, you know, we, we, we literally spent about an hour and a half on each song. And we tracked three songs a day with all the overdubs and everything on there. Yeah. And the live vocals. And we recorded that record in three days, 12 songs in three days. And then we mixed it in two days and then we mastered it at the end of the week. It was a, se- it was a seven-day production start to finish yeah respect and it was a lot of fun i think we actually had a fourth day planned and we we were already done so we drove around in a car and listened to it and we all decided no we don't need to do anything else we're done so it was it was a thrill to 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 move quick speaking of moving quick we kind of confused everybody (laughs) because we've jumped ahead to these days but let's twist back now you're in high school Mm -hmm. and you're playing in bands Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd gotten into all this kind of thing, and, and I had a band going for a while that, that uh, I believed in, this band we were all living together and stuff. And right, that, that, Stooges style. Yeah, and that, that kind of fell apart, and uh, oh, it, it fell apart and closed down, and I was trying to figure out what I should do, and the number one thing in my mind was, I got to get the hell out of here. I got to get out of Tennessee. I got to get out of Tennessee. I got to get out of the South. I got to get out of here completely. I'm not going to go anywhere here there was a lot of police down there and yeah and i just thought i you know there's no there at that time there was no support for local bands or musicians or anything if you wanted to be a musician you the only thing that made sense was for you to become a high school music teacher or something like oh that. yeah yeah you know so i realized like i had to get out of this whole area and i didn't know how i didn't have any money and anyway 
right around that time, uh, Iggy had actually kind of come back on the scene after being uh, uh, vacant for for several years, and uh, he had a new record out, and he was on tour. Yeah. And I'd seen him on television, and he had uh, played a live show on, on MTV in New York with this new band doing this show. And he spent the whole show screaming at his drummer and throwing stuff at him and just wrecking the whole thing. And it was it looked like there were big problems. <laughs> and, and anyway, I proceeded to uh, to check out his tour dates, and I noticed that he was playing some shows in Tennessee. He was playing in Memphis and in Nashville. So um, me and a friend drove to Memphis to see him play. And uh, we got there, and he came on stage, and there was a new drummer. And it couldn't have been two weeks later. So I realized, oh, he's... You know, he's changed. He fired that guy. Yeah. And um, the new fellow that he had, the guy was a good drummer, but it was it was kind of painfully painfully obvious to me that he um, he didn't really know the material that well. He didn't really understand like what that stuff was. You know, like what he didn't know these songs. And of course, I knew this stuff by this point. Like you know, back your head. Yeah, you know, I'd grown up listening listening to the Stooges, and and I had all this stuff. At in this my... point, you had never played outside of your town. No, well, I think I'd played in Nashville once or twice, but that the was band it. went over to Nashville. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But no, I'd never been outside of uh, Tennessee. Or okay. Anything. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, I saw that, and I realized completely, like. What a what a mess this was, and and uh, at least in my I'm mind, do some about it. Yeah, and, and and he also <laughs> maybe sp- help myself. Well, he, well, he also spent that show yelling at that guy too, and and really, you could tell he was not happy and not satisfied with with what with what it was, and I just I couldn't help but I had this epiphany, you know, sitting there in that chair, where I realized that. I know how to do this. I I can fix this situation. I, I sat there naively thinking like, this is what I should do. This is what I have to do. I have to I have to go with him. By this time, uh, you're getting personalities of drummers, and you know Stooges. Yeah, yeah. So what'd you think of Scotty? Well, I mean, those I are those three S- Scotty. I mean, for me, I guess you know, at that in those days. Honestly, I was listening mostly to, to just Iggy. I was listening to the Stooges and Iggy's solo records. Yeah. I knew all. I knew the whole book. I knew all the stuff. And Those I drummers knew, on the solo albums are much different than Scotty's. Yeah, but Hunt, I totally understood. Okay. I mean, Hunt, I, I latched onto quite a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, because I listened to a lot of big band stuff and a lot of jazz players, a lot of jazz drummers, and Hunt was, and a lot of soul drummers, and and to me, Hunt was like a perfect. Uh, 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 you know, combination of soul drumming and big band jazz drumming, and and he he really was is a great drummer, and I understood his style completely, and I understood Scotty's style completely, and those were those guys were really really in my blood, you know, and I, I really understood this stuff, and so I I thought what what I was thinking in my mind, I guess, was I was thinking. Iggy needs that. He needs that. He needs someone who understands Scotty and Hunt. You know, that's that's the thing. Someone who can bridge the Stooges with his solo career. And and I thought I can do that. I I know this. And so we we drove to Nashville and saw them play again. And it was the same scenario. And I was confirmed in my mind like that's shorter it. drive. Well, we were driving back towards okay. Knoxville. <laughs> it's a nine-hour drive from Memphis oh, man, to Knoxville. Oh you know what? <laughs> <laughs> We're at the end of the first hour. Yeah. Uh, July 5, 2011, Watt from Pedro Show. Hold tight for hour two.
July 5th, 2011, it's second hour of the Watt from Pete Rose Show.
Turn me 
Watch from Pedro Show started the second hour off with uh, something from my uh, album. Sonia de Marinaio bandmate Stefano Palia, who's living in Bologna. And uh, that was Oblivion Part 2 from his band Three Quarters Had Been Eliminated. Which is kind of heavy for a band. Yeah. Somebody was left to finish the album. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then we heard Don't Miss the Boat by Keyboard Money Mark. And I was telling you, we got a project called. Maybe I didn't finish, but it's called uh, Los Punkin' Heads. And a cat named John Wicks on the drums, and uh, Raymond rapping. Uh-huh. Raymond Pettibone, yeah, so Money Mark's getting that yeah. all together. Yeah. All right. But I did, I came in with bass lines, uh, songs written on the bass, and then the drummy came on, and then Money Mark, and then Raymond. Wow. So it's a trippy thing. That's interesting. And then uh, we heard the 68th paragraph by Polarity Taskmasters. <laughs> that was recorded by... Uh, what are your nails? Is he's an organ player? I want to get his name right. Wayne Wayne Pete. I even got to record in his pad once with uh, flute player Emily Hay, keyboard Motoko Honda. Yeah, good cats. Oh yeah, and Brad Dutz. <laughs> and, uh, well. It's important. He's a percussion guy. Yeah, yeah. Right? Ain't going to discount that. Yeah. <clears throat> but some good stuff. Back to the story. You go see Ig, a holler at a drummer in Nashville now. Well, yeah, we saw the second show, and, and I, I I was sort of confirmed in my mind that, you know, like this was... I got to fix this. this. This is a problem that I have to fix. Ig deserves yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at this point, I, I think I was 17 or 18 years old. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, we, we drove back to Knoxville, and I just had, you know, a bug in my brain, you know. I was like, I'm, I'm just, I know what I have to do. And so I, I, I did a little research and found, like, the rest of his tour dates. And uh, I noticed that they were touring with the Pretenders. So that meant they had a bunch of shows in Ohio. And Where I thought, from, yeah, yeah and I, th- I thought, well, that's not that far away. And I, at the time, I owned a, like a 63 Chevy Nova station wagon. Yeah. And so what I decided I was going to do was I, I put my drums in the back of the station wagon. Yeah, yeah, there. <laughs> I put my drums in the back of the station wagon. Yeah. And I uh, packed a little bag, and I drove to Ohio from Knoxville. Yeah. And uh, I got up there to the first, uh, the first show, you know, and I... And what I had done was basically I'd made a bunch of cassette tapes of, of stuff that I'd recorded of, of me playing. And then I, I wrote like some handwritten letters to, to Iggy, kind of telling him about like who I was and what I've done and what I wanted to do and how I felt about what I saw on stage <laughs> with this show. Right. And uh, they were really... Reporter's opinion. Yeah, well, they were really sincere and and very... what, you're talking 17, 18 years old, right? Yeah, I mean, they were sincere and obviously very naive, you know, but but, uh, I honestly believe that uh, based off the interviews I'd read with him that he would understand this stuff, what I was saying, and that it would make sense to him. You might have been a little naive, too. No, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. That's I what I'm saying. Said no, 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 no. I, my, my writing, my whole dream, sure. my dream was naive, 
you know the whole yeah, th- right, the whole right. thing was incredibly yeah. crazy and naive you know but i believed it 100 percent. yeah 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 i was uh, twisting my head like whoa yeah no i That's you know what intense. i was i mean what how could i be thinking this but anyway i was thinking this sometimes it takes the balls like church bells yeah well you know, you know i figured what have i got to lose so i yeah. i i uh I went into the venue. I, you know, Bird, getting the pound down from Mr. Luna. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I bought my ticket, went in the venue, and I marched right at first, and I marched right up to the to the stage and and gave my my little envelopes to to his to his stage crew, same guys that are working with us right now. So, uh, you know, I get I gave those envelopes to them, and I thought, well, that's that. And then, uh, you know, of course, nothing happened. I watched the show. It was. Same same feelings that I you know that I had. Uh, next show was I don't know 100 miles away. I drove to that show. I slept in my car in the front seat of my car, and I uh, drove to the next show and did the same now thing. Now you got the drums because you're gonna be ready when they give yeah. you the go. You're gonna get the go. <laughs> now when I'm talking about naive, I said my letter like if you don't believe me, I've got my drums in the yeah, back of the car. And I said, if you if you if you want, I'll set I'll set them up out in the parking lot here, and I'll show you that I'm right. <laughs> that's how na- bold, naive. That's, that's how naive I was. I mean, but kind anyway, of naive, but in a way, at least you were ready. I was. I was. You know what I mean? I was ready. Another to back, dude might be just words. I was ready to back it up. Yeah. So I mean, in my mind, that ain't total naive. In my mind, I thought if I get a chance to show him. Then I'm just leaving my car here somewhere in Ohio, and I'm on the road with him forever. You know, I just—I yeah. I was just going for it. So, because uh, a real idiot would, you know, not even know how to play. He was well, just like I, me. See, I mean, so I think you—you you had well, of course, kind I, of a thing. But I could have been wrong. But 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 I, in my mind, I thought I was right. You know, I thought I really do know how to do this. He and, sees and I it. Think if I he hears it, he'll yeah. know. Yeah, that's what yeah, I. That's, that's honest. That's honestly what I thought. Anyway, so I I went and did the same thing. There's nothing jive in that. That's what I'm saying. I think it's got integrity. Well, I mean, everything I wrote him, you know, I was being just, you know, painfully honest about me and him. And I think, you know, I think he probably sensed that. But anyway, the next show, you know, I did the same thing. I gave these letters again to same roadies. And I also gave one to his bus driver that I saw out in the parking lot. You know, I was making multiple copies of these things, and I was going for it, you know. Nothing happens. What's on the tape? The tape is just like recordings of me. Uh, they by yourself, though? Or some, some, by, some by myself, maybe okay. a couple with some bands, you know, whatever whatever I had in those days. Like examples of your That's the best powers. It's the best I could come up with, you know. I had to do something. So, uh you know, I went to some more shows. I don't know how many. I might have done five shows or maybe at a whole week of shows. I was living in my car, and, uh, you know, nothing was happening. You know, I wasn't getting any reactions. I was giving my packages every show to these roadies and, and you know, just thinking, well, sooner or later, one of these things has got to get in his hands, and he'll probably, like, open it up and read this, you know. Uh, so after... After a week of this... Well, maybe you might have been thinking, maybe he ain't getting them. Well, I, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. They're probably tossing them in the garbage, who knows what. But I figure at some point, he's going he's going to hear about this and open one of these things up and read it. So after about a week, um, you know, I know I knew it by this point, watching the show all week long, I had the show already memorized. You know, I knew, I, I knew what was going on. Yeah. And every show, he would do a breakdown in TVI... And sort of 
talk about the daily news or, or something, whatever, some, some topical s- stream of consciousness kind of delivery. And it was always interesting. And, uh, kind of the rap. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this night, uh, all of a sudden, he started talking about growing up in a small town and having a, a vision uh, to get out of the town and, and being held back by, by the constraints of, 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 of being in the South and not understanding how to get... He, was, he was started talking about everything that I was writing him about. about so my, you could tell that he And read. I was like, holy shit, he's read my letter. He's, he got it. Actually, Knoxville is the big town. What's your hometown? Knoxville. Well, I, I, I come from, from Sevierville, just outside of yeah. uh, Knoxville. Yeah. You should get that straight, though, because there's well, some people back there who might... Well, Sevierville... Oh, be proud of it. Well, I actually, I actually grew up in Seymour, you know, but, but, okay. I, but, I, but that's just next to... That's in between Sevierville and Knoxville, you know. And Sevierville's where Dolly Parton and, yeah. and Cormac McCarthy is, has come out of. And, cool. So that those are, those are my roots there. See, but. there can be a small town, but there can always be a small. Town. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, you got villages and then you know everything. But back but, to Ink and his rap. Well, you know the rap. The rap confirms to you it got through. Yeah, he was he was talking about everything that I was trying to tell him, which is I'm trying to get out of this bubble, and and I know that I deserve to be out of this bubble, and and I you know and he's and he was saying like. Um, well, he was saying like sometimes the the only thing you've got if you got nothing sometimes the only thing you can do is just get in your car and drive after what you want. You know, you, you, you ha- yeah, you have to get in it and you have to go after what you believe in. What yeah. you, you have to not be afraid to go after what you want, your dream. You know, and that's exactly what I was writing him. And Screen I was like, the and I was sitting there watching that, thinking, God Almighty, like he's 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 he got it. It didn't get tossed. Yeah, I was like, or I, one I thought I made, I, I did it. I made this connection, yeah. and that was kind of like the only thing I figured. Well, that's as far as this is going to go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave. That's I'm gonna it. go home. This is as far as this is going to go. I can't. I was out of money, and I was tired, and I just wanted to go home. And I turned around, and standing there 18, behind me, I was a tard man. <laughs> we're we're starting to go to punk shows. Mm. Well, I, I, I had no idea. I did say to D Boone. When we saw the first one, I said, we can do this. Mm-hmm. I did. I was kind of empowered, but I didn't have the balls. Like, <laughs> Well, well I, you know, I turned around, and standing there behind me was his, his, his chief roadie, uh, Joss, who, who you and I both know very well now. And uh, Joss was standing right behind me, and I recognized him. And he had found me in a crowd of about four or 5,000 people, which I immediately understood i understood like oh he's found me and uh and he basically in in so many short words told me to get lost and he didn't want to see me anymore and told me that i was doing this the wrong way and just just disappear and so i told him there's no hard feelings i am leaving and i was going to leave and there's nothing, you know, nothing Thank to be worried about. <laughs> nothing to be worried about. You know, of course, Joss, as you know, is a very physically fit man. <laughs> so anyway, so I made my way back to Knoxville and I thought, well, I did it. You know, I made my I made my connection. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was the main thing I was trying to do. I was reaching out. Yeah. I was reaching outside of my bubble, outside of my zone. And um and I realized like the main thing about this was that I realized that 
money or talent is not necessarily going to get me out of here, but writing will could possibly get me out of here. So I, I, I thought I should write. Writing letters. Writing letters because yeah. I'm good at that. And I thought I should write more people. Write some more people that solicitor. Yeah, I should write more people some some personal letters yeah. that pe- musicians that I like or people that I thought I could work with or that I understood. Put your stuff so yeah. you're available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Say I'm trying trying to get out. I mean, of course, I was 17. Yeah, you know, I was like, right. I'm available. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I thought I, I made me a little list of people to write yeah. to. So I wrote to Adrian Ballou. And and that also led to going to Ohio. He was living in Cincinnati at that time, and his, he's from Champaign originally. Well, his manager actually contacted yeah. me, invited me to come up there and meet with him. So I did. I drove okay. up there and met with him. Uh, I met with his manager, but he had a band going on at that time called the Bears. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was with all his high school buddies, and mm-hmm. basically nothing was going to interrupt that. So I realized that wasn't going anywhere. So, um, so I came back and I, I wrote XTC in England. You know, yeah, and um, of course, nothing happened there. Uh, and then the other person I wrote was was Greg Ginn from from so Black Cal. from Black Flag. So I sent him a letter, same thing. You know, told him I, I was thinking about moving to New York or moving to Los Angeles, and uh, and well, yeah, I was like, I don't know which one it's going to be, you know. But anyway, I just want to, I'm you know, I'm trying, you know, and here's some. You know, if you want to listen to the stuff that I'm doing, this is some stuff. And I, I think he actually listened to this stuff. And um, Oh, they were just letters. The cassettes were with these things, too. Yeah, everything yeah, had cassettes. Yeah. Okay. Back in those days, we had cassettes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't and, uh, just letters. It wasn't just the Yeah, word. no, no, no. It had music. It also had music. So I, I think Greg actually listened to this stuff. Because as you know, Greg listens to everything. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Um, anyway, so he... And he's into, you know... it was. A, our second gig, he said, "You want to be 002. He's into going for it. Yeah, well, he's you know what I mean. He's not afraid to take chances. And that's so, what I mean. He, I think that's we why we even together we, at all. We had a polka drummer. We didn't just start. And he said, "You want to be 002. Well, I think that's he's why balls out, man. When he, I think he read my thing and listened yeah. to my thing, and I think he took it dead serious. And and at the time, I was uh, painting houses to save up money to move out of out of Tennessee. Yeah. And I was up on a ladder painting the side of a house, and uh, so so and so, the guy who owned the house said, "Look, you got a phone call here. Uh, you know, I think it's important." So he passed me the phone up on the ladder. It had come from, uh, I guess, my parents had given him the number where I was. He was really tracking me down. Yeah. And uh, so I answered the phone, and it's hi. This is Greg Ginn. And I almost fell off the ladder. I was like, "Oh my God, really? What?" And he's like, "Look, I've I got your." your letter here and your tapes i've been listening to this stuff and i really like it and i really uh, i want to i want to help you get out here i said well great you know I'm, I'm i'll be out there you know this summer and he was like well what would it take for you to come out here like now because i'd like to do something with you right now and i said well i don't know i'm just trying to save up money really to, to drive across the united states and He's like, well, what do you need? I said, I, you know, just gas money, really. So he's like, well, I'm going to wire that to you right now. So he wired me some gas money. Yeah. And I had to pretty much drive around town that afternoon and tell all my friends goodbye. Yeah. You know, and I was like, this is it. I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. And uh, I got one friend uh, who jumped in the car with me to go the next morning. And I don't want to come back either. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> Rest his soul. That, that guy's name was Bonehead. He was. A, oh he, shit! Did you know? You remember Bonehead? He was a dorb. 
He worked at that Vickin build. Oh, yeah. You remember? He was a big guy with Shit, a big yeah. mohawk. Well, Bonehead, uh, he's passed he away. Passed away, right? A couple of months yeah, ago. somebody told me that. And uh, anyway, he uh, he jumped in the car with me, and I was going to drive across alone, and so I put Vickin all- Bills. You guys got to know about this. There was a deli. This is where the Minutemen first played Knoxville. Yep, yep. In front of uh, uh-huh. gold cases and shit. Yeah. The only thing, I mean, this is a frat's hoagies. Yeah, a frat <laughs> town in a way, as far as. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a college town. Uh, people who've come of age and stuff yeah, yeah. go back to Boy Scouts and become frat boys. Mm-hmm. It was kind of tough. And the punk scene there was. It was tough to be one, I think. Well, yeah. This is my experience being a guy who's torn around in different towns. And people, it wasn't gratuitous. You wanted to be a punk, you had to work at it in that town. Yeah. And uh, I dug that gig, and this is where I met Camp Childers, who yeah, you know. Yeah, Camp. And okay, a little side note there, yeah, but this was a, a great gig for us. And yeah. Well, Bonehead was, was like an institution of that city. He was a punk. He got rock. in the boat with you, though. Yeah, he, he, oh, well, and which, which was a blessing for me, because I was going to drive all the way to Los Angeles with everything that I owned in the back of my car, yeah. without a gun. And you know, <laughs> with no money and etc. Alone, and uh, that's a long ways to go as as a, as a kid. Yeah. Anyway, I had Bonehead with me, and as you may recall, he was a very big yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah. He was really big, part Cherokee Indian with a huge, full size mohawk. Really intimidating looking figure. So he was my passenger, and um, this is 1987. Yeah, and so he we had already played. Yeah. So, uh, okay. oh yeah, yeah, a couple of years before. That. Yeah, yeah. So, so we we took off driving. You know, I blew a I blew a piston and outside in Arkansas, outside of Memphis, and I had to get that repaired. Spent all my money on that, but we kept going. Damn, and, you weren't even out Tennessee yeah, yet. Yeah, no, uh, you know, we we were determined, but but he and I, you know, we were sleeping in the car, you know, having shout, you know, every every town, you know, in the morning we'd go find a, a motel with a swimming pool outside and jump in the pool for a shower and then get back and dri- keep driving, you know. <laughs> we drove all the way across the United States like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he'd sleep on the top of the car like like, like, like a beached whale, and I'd sleep in the front seat, you know, and all my stuff was George in the back. George used to sleep on the roof of the boat. Yeah. So, you know, it was like See, that. See, I am a wild... That's why I don't use a bed. I use the deck because I roll around. I'd fucking break my neck for sure if I tried. <laughs> uh, we had incredible times. How I long did it take? Four days? Three days? I, I think we spent about a week driving across. A week? Yeah, wow. So, or five days. I remember he, we stopped outside of Dallas somewhere. He was always picky about where we were going to sleep. And he would like, we'd drive around looking for a cool place to park and sleep. And we found a baseball field one time outside of Dallas and he's like oh this is going to be great let's sleep at the baseball field you sleep he's like that's it you sleep in the front seat and I'm going to go sleep on the pitcher's mound in a sleeping bag so he went out (laughs) so he what what fucking phone don't work yeah (laughs) so so anyway oh (laughs) sorry people oh we got the headquarters here well, that's stopped. Well, you know, so he, he got that's a bullshit. Good old bonehead. He went out and like I slept in the car and he went out and set yeah. up his sleeping bag on on the on the. No, pitch but I'm thinking of the, the route, man. you know, because of the easiest way you know this now after touring is I forty. What you should have done was, well, we drove across Texas. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a part of Texas you want to do is the Panhandle, we did the Amarillo, I forty. We did, we did the low road. 
which that's is a lot te- more miles. That's Texas, Oklahoma, and, and, and all the way yeah, to Arizona. Yeah, I know exactly how it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so not that, Oklahoma. That there was I, no uh, Oklahoma. You did I ten. Yeah, we did Arkansas, Texas. Look, there's something about we're doing a radio show Shout, we heard Steve McKay on the phone. Thank you so much. There's something about my phone. I try to answer the fucker and it don't ring. Till they're done. Yeah, we ain't really doing the uh, shout. We're doing the radio show. Okay. And I had a coat in the window because I can't stand it. Anyway, this is the box. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's my coat. Henry, you're beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. So, so, so anyway, we, we made it. So down. you went, and, and, well, what time of year was this? The summer. Shh. Yeah, yeah. You took yeah. the roaster route. Yeah, we took the roaster route. So you did, you did like El Paso and. Yeah, we, we went all all through Arizona oh, and, we, and we we finally got to Southern California and then I moved in with Greg. Oh, and so I moved in with Greg, and uh, they're in Lawndale and um, you know Greg put it together, yeah, <laughs> and um, you know we started rehearsing and you know started this whole thing going and um, we never did get a band together. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, we never did get a band together, but anyway, he he was really supportive. And Which kinda, what you did was, I can enlighten you people a little bit. He probably did some eight-hour jams. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. You know, as soon as I got there, he's like, "Well, tomorrow we're going to jam," and then we we went to a rehearsal yeah, space. Yeah, you, you gotta describe what that was like. Well, we went into a we went into a uh, you know a punk rock rehearsal space mm-hmm. and. Uh, and we sat up and we jammed for about eight hours or something like that, all day long. Really, really heavy. And um, right. And then you know went back come home and listen. Come back and he'd stay up all night listening to yeah. what we did all day. And the next morning we'd get up and he wanted to go do it again. Right. And so we we did this night and day, night and day, night and day for I don't know, a couple, ten days or two weeks or something. And, yeah. And I was I was pretty exhausted. <laughs> you know. I'm down. I was out of money and really, really tired and trying to uh, figure out, like, you know, where, where is this going, you know? And it seemed clear at a certain point that, that we weren't going to get any anybody else to work with. And I, I just got frustrated with the whole thing and, and just sort of moved out. Yeah. And uh, I moved up to Hollywood, and I wound up... Uh, the best move. <laughs> yeah. I wound up moving in with this band, Tex and the Horseheads. Yeah. And... Uh, my Mark, good buddy of mine. Well, actually, that, he's originally from Long Beach. Well, at that, at that time, Dave Catching was, was playing guitar in the band. Oh, really? He, I remember he, that. And now Dave yeah. plays in the Eagles of Death Metal, and, and he sure, used to be sure. in the Queens of the Stone Age. And uh, sure. Anyway, we all we all wound up living together, and uh, you're in the trippy days of them. Yeah, I, I did that for for a year with those guys, and and you know, kind of moved out of that, and then I wound up. Uh, Becoming good friends with, with Paul Rossler there, you know, and and um, Paul's case brother. Yeah, I had a band with him called Cromedy. We played some Cromedy on the show. It was just piano and bass for some time I ever played with the piano. No, really, second in high school. Uh huh. Somebody asked me to play bass. The best bass player at our school wanted to play piano at the talent show for a Stevie Wonder cover. <laughs> And I'd never done anything like that. And I played this, and the bass line was like boom, 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 mm-hmm. boom. The kick drum pattern. Well, now, 
you know, I had known about Paul. Paul. Did you know about him? Oh, I knew about him. First time I ever laid eyes. grade. First time I ever laid eyes on Paul was with the with the SST operation coming into Knoxville uh, with the with the rat van coming in with the rider so truck. DC three. Yeah, it was DC three and uh, play bass parts on the organ. Yep, and he and you know the rat the rat rider truck had backed up to the venue and and they know, carried their own PA. Yeah, there was the old the whole, their old PA there, and that was where you know I about Dave now. Yeah. Uh, Eighteen semi trucks. You would not believe the company. Well, I would believe it after all. After how hard I saw him working when I met him, but yeah, uh, but the first thing, first time I ever saw Paul was, uh, you know, black flag truck had pulled up. It was the Rat PA truck, and they, the, you know, Dave got out from behind the driver's wheel and came Brian, around back and his partner Brian. Yeah, yeah, and they rolled up the back of the truck and uh, <laughs> and no, and and Paul Rossler crawled out of, oh, Paul, from dude. on top of the PA. You know, with with his uh, six foot long dreadlocks. Because <laughs> Hank used to be back there till some like uh, yeah. scary thing with Dave. And like I'm never riding back there. Again. Well, Paul was doing it anyway. So that was my first. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. <laughs> that was my first vision. Trailer ballast of, of Paul, and I thought, wow, yeah. you know, man, these guys are intense. And um, but of course, which was trippy because Paul, uh, one of the few Hollywood guys from the Hollywood scene that transferred over. Yeah. Like Hollywood people were considered too sissy. Yeah, but Paul did it. Well, he Respect went. To Paul. He went from working with Nina Hagen to that. You yeah, know? but before so, that, he was a screamer. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I mean, you know, he's he'd been in Berlin and he'd been around the world, and that's you know, right. He knew a thing right. or two, and he was doing that. And he went and, back to her. Yeah, I know. He's yeah. he played on her last record actually, but. Uh, but anyway, you know, of course, DC three were great. You Dezo. know, so so I, I knew I knew about him, and so Damn, who was I. Your drummy died. Yeah, he did. That was Louie. Louie. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was a nice cat. Yeah, I remember him. And he was playing with Tex. He was playing with Tex before I like uh, before I started. Yeah. And, and uh, that. Yeah, you were in a weird mode of Texas it, band. Now well, I'm it was, thinking it was about a lot it. of tra- a lot of transition going on. A lot of people coming and going. She's better now, though. You know. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, but a lot of people hanging out. Keith Morris was at every one of our shows, and like yeah. he was real supportive of me, and he and I became really good friends at that He's time. Cool and um, anyway, you know, so so I wound up I, I wound up uh, in this thing with Paul, and uh, and that was kind of going on for a year. And it was kind of, you know, we weren't really doing that much. We played some shows. Oh, he had a weird thing with Mark Curry. No, this was before. Before that, that we yeah. decided. Yeah, we, we we were calling it Twisted Roots at the time. Yeah, she had this band, Twisted Roots. Sure, band. that goes way back with and his then, sister. And then I talked him into changing. I talked him into changing the name of the band to a Jim Dandy thing that I knew about, and we changed the name of the band to the Halls of Karma. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. He loved the name, so he so changed. You were it. part of that. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was staying at Paul's house and all kinds of stuff like that. But anyway, you know that wasn't really, wasn't, it wasn't really going anywhere. And I, I had plans to, um, I had plans to, to move up to to the Bay Area and just like get out of music altogether. I, I was just sick of everything. And um, one night I was out at a bar, and and there was a kid who was who was coming to a lot of these shows with Paul. And he was a guitarist. His name was Whitey Kirst. And yeah. he, he was coming, and he was kind of a fan. He's from Calgary. He's from Calgary. He was a fan, and uh, he was always trying to set up jam sessions with me. And, uh, you know, one night I'd been out at a bar, and I, I saw on a television on a David Letterman show, Iggy was on the show. And David was asking him questions, and one of the questions was, look, you know, I see you always, you know, have different musicians on your 
on your records. And how do you find these guys? How do you find these musicians? Do you put an ad out in the paper? What do you do? And, and Iggy was sort of laughing the whole thing off, but he proceeded to sort of tell him the whole story about, about me following, following him around in Ohio. And, and How many was, years ago now is this? That had been a couple, two or three years. Still kind of recent. And, yeah, and I thought, I thought, I mean, of course, my jaw dropped when he started telling the story. But then, then afterwards, I realized, like, wow, like, I, I, I made a real impression with him. He remembers Right, it this. wasn't just a spiel on TV. No, he really remembers this. Yeah. And, and I thought, wow, that, that, was, that was something real. Anyway, so shortly after that. That's cool. This kid, Whitey, he, he's telling me. At, at a bar, he's like, look, I got an audition tomorrow with this guy, some singer, his name's Iggy Pop. Have you ever heard of him? And I, and I, and I said... You know, I, I heard, heard this about Whitey, too. Like, yeah. Whitey didn't know who he, he was. He didn't, he didn't know anything about him. And uh, he was friends with his son. And, uh, and I was like, You're, you have an audition tomorrow with Iggy Pop? And you don't know who he is? He's like, no. And I said, well, I, and I told him some stuff about Iggy. But then I also told him. Ain't about, that a trip? Yeah, I told him the story. <laughs> I told him a story about what I'd done like several years before in Ohio. And, and he was like, you know, of course, to him it was all abstract. He didn't yeah, know who any of this stuff like. was. And I said, well, I said, look, you know, if you get a chance to talk to him, you should tell him you know the guy who did that, you know, because he'd probably laugh and, you know, take some pressure off the situation and give you something to talk about. Well, the next day I, w- I went home from work. You know what, where you were at <laughs> when you were caulking at Paul's? That's called Walteria. It was Torrance. It's actually called Walteria. It's a little section of Torrance between there. Yeah, it's part of Torrance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's got it's, what they do when they make track homes. They give these things names. Yeah. You know, to sell oh. them. And, and they call that part yeah. Walteria. It was, it's between Palos Ver- It's the north side of yeah. Palos Verdes, Rolling Hills. Yeah. And Torrance, the yeah. South High was right across the, the PCH, yeah. the big road near yeah. you was Pacific Coast Highway. Yeah. And he's not in Hollywood, people. This is like about 27 miles south. Yeah. So yeah, I can yeah. imagine you wanting... Down in the petroleum I got to do something. Yeah, the petroleum his track homes. Yeah. And actually, it was kind of good for him because that scene was rough, but mm-hmm. some of the scene we could do <laughs> inside that path. But actually, it was kind of close to Pedro. You weren't that far from me at well, that time. One time with that band, we did play in, in Pedro. We did at some party, someone's house in the backyard. Okay, so you yeah. were in my town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I was there once. But, uh, well, anyways, the yeah, next, back to Whitey. The next day, you know, after this thing, I, I come home from work, and, and, I, and I check my answer machine, and there's a message on there from, from Iggy. And uh, it's him oh, talking. Oh, you gave the number. Yeah. yeah. I said, yeah, well, he had my phone number. So I guess he must have asked, give me that guy's phone number. Yeah. So he so he so he called me, left me a message and, and I and I heard I heard this message and he's asking me to call him back at his hotel and I thought this is a trick, you know, this is not real. This guy's playing a trick on me, you know. Someone these guys are gonna have a big oh, you, laugh. You couldn't hear his voice? No, I heard his I heard, I heard his voice, but I thought this this is someone playing a joke on me. It can't be real. Doing fake ink. Yeah, they're they're gonna get a big laugh on yeah. this one. But I figured, well, I wrote the number down and I figured, well, I better just call this and just, you know, see what it is. And I called it, and it was the hotel that it, that he had said it was. And I said, yeah, I'm calling this guy in this room here, and they put me through. And and Iggy answered the phone, and I, and of course, I was beside myself at that point, you know. And he said, look, I got your number from this guy, you know, this guitar player, and uh, I really want you to come down tomorrow. We got a place where we can where we can jam and. And I'm trying to put a new band together, and I want you to come down and do it and just see how it goes. And, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. 
so I went down there and and um, you know I did my best and of course of course I knew all the stuff and um, it went really really well and uh, after the thing um, you know we talked a little bit and he and he pretty much just said like this is the way it's going to be you know I want I want this to be the band and I want you to be the drummer and you know it's going to go Who's on. Who's Basie? There's uh, a fellow named Craig Pike oh, okay. who, who was playing in a band with Whitey at that time mm-hmm. so. That 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 was the audition was the three of us and, yeah. and he was like look we're just going to leave it like this this is what it's going to be yeah. if you guys are all right and we all said yes and you know we pretty much you know said cool you know that's it we're going to do it and then I wound up like working with him every day for the next nine years and you know we became very very close and you know I mean still I still ended up moving to the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, it didn't really matter where I lived. I mean, yeah. one, once. I mean, the These first were long tours. People. The first thing we did was a was right? a was These a were like year and a half or the first the first tour we did was a, was a year, and that was quite a shock for me because well, I mean, I didn't really have anywhere to live, but at that point, I didn't need anywhere to live, right, so right. I put everything in storage and we went on the road for a year, and uh, played a lot, went all over the place. I mean, most of the tour was outside of the United States, you know, but. We came back and we took a little break. We restructured the band and got got new guitar player and, and bass player and and um, you know mounted that new thing, made a new record and and went you, on the road for eighteen did, months. You know when you saw him before in the I, I wanted to ask you this by spaced, which I hardly do. <laughs> no, but was Dougie Bound in one of those bands? No, no, Dougie played with so him. That's post Dougie. Okay, Dougie played with him. I think around eighty two. Or eighty one or eighty two, Doug, yeah. Dougie played on uh, Party. I actually got to uh, record with him when he was with Chris Whitley. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Chris Whitley. I did. I, did, I made one record with Chris Whitley too. Yeah, yeah I only got to I, record on one song. It was at Oxnard. He was beautiful. He was a great guy. Great singer, great yeah. player, and yeah. in, in person. Yeah, I really, really, really great guy. People, uh, he died early. Yeah, too early. That's for sure. He's kind of a blues man. He was a great blues man. Huh? Yeah, he was more than a blues man. He yeah. was he's a great slide player. I'm really not talking a, a, affected with capital or small a. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a blues man. You know he about his a, daughter, right? Belgian yeah. mother or something. Well, she she's a she's a singer. She's got a band with Daniel Lenoir right now. Is that right? Yeah, called Black Dub, and they're really great. Okay. She's she's just a, she's a young girl, but she's really really a great. She's a, an incredible singer. The talent has definitely passed down. Oh, it's amazing. He was always She's, it's her and Daniel Lanois and, and Brian Blade. Wow. Yeah. He would always talk about her. He was great. I miss Chris. Yeah. And he, he played on one of my records one song, a Blue Oyster Cult song doing Slide, do, yeah. uh, Dominance and Submission. Yeah. Well, now, <laughs> now the fellow who produced his first record, uh, they made that record, it was Daniel Lanois and Malcolm Byrne. That's the guy who produced this Chloe oh, wow. Mom's record. You know what? He didn't like that first record. Oh, he didn't like it? No, no he no. thought it was Mersh. Oh, well. He liked the ones after the yeah. kind of meat puppet thing. And oh, yeah, yeah. record company did not dig that. Oh, or an okay. A&R or something. yeah. 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 Well, he moved around. Five fifty deaths. I know he, he got tossed around with the labels. I know he moved yeah, around. Yeah, but you know what? I, but that's my Dougie. I'm I'm wondering where Dougie was in the thing. I first saw him with uh, John Cale, and uh, right, I know he yeah. went on to lounge lizards and that. Right. But back to this. Uh, you're doing nine years of touring with Ig. It was nine years of and har- hard work. Yeah, yeah. We we made we made several records. We worked on a on a on a film together. That was a huge project. That was a big big part of our our. Our relationship, I think, was this. This we did a we did a film score with with Johnny Depp for, for 
for a film Johnny Depp made called The Brave. It was Johnny's first written and directed film. Yeah. And uh, Iggy and I did that together, and we worked really, really hard on that project together. That, that was interesting. Which albums did you record with him? Um, American yeah, Caesar. Caesar. And then, and then it was, uh, I guess, uh, Naughty Little Doggy and Avenue B, the, these records. And, yeah, the movie was sort of the most interesting thing we ever did because that was without a band. Yeah. It was really just me and him, and it was a much more personal project. What town? Los Angeles. Okay. We were staying, uh, we were staying, I, I wound up staying in L.A. for three months working on that. And, wow. Uh, and uh, we were working really closely with Johnny, and it was it was really a an earnest project. It was really we all we were all working very hard on that. It was great. It's the best thing we did together, I think. Was that in the middle of the tour of the nine? I was around ninety four, ninety five, yeah, so somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. So after the movie, you went back to the <laughs> yeah yeah the gigage. yeah yeah yeah, and. Uh, Changes in the band? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we changed. Yeah, we, we changed uh, guitar players and bass players. And I started working with a lot of different bands in, in that time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I joined this band Swans. Oh, that's from right. From New York. And, oh, and, so you uh, had moved to New York? No, I was still living in San Francisco. Actually, Just playing with you? Yeah, I was playing with them. Actually, at that point, well, I'd become really close friends with Michael because mm-hmm. uh, I was spending so much time in New York. Uh, when I would come to Zig New York. Zig was living in New York. Yeah. So whenever we would rehearse and, and organize anything, it was done in New York. Mm-hmm. So I would be there, and Michael kind of became my best friend in New York. So when I would get into town, I would call him. Yeah. And so I would, if we would, we, I would do my work, and then at night I'd go out with Michael drinking beer and talking about music and life and everything else. And he became like my best friend there. And um, uh, he actually... I didn't see him in that period. I saw Swans in the 80s. Yeah, I actually, I actually got him to come to San Francisco, and mm-hmm. uh, and you know he got a new manager. He had a, you know what? He had a band in the old days that played our scene. Maybe it was called the Strict IDs or the Cripples or now those. I don't know. You know about this? I don't before know. Before he went the, to New York, and oh, the yeah, before, he yeah. had a band. I can't remember the name because he's from the hill. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's such a trip. Yeah. So you got him to come to SF? Yeah, he came there, and we actually kind of put a. Oh, new... but you got to meet some SF people too during this time. Well, yeah, yeah. It wasn't I mean, just suitcase. You got to actually meet what residents? Well, yeah. Well, the Cryptic Corporation. Yeah, I, I got involved with the Cryptic Corporation. Cryptic Corporation. But uh, yeah. What that happened? Uh, In between making movies and touring with Egg. Well, that that happened. I don't know. It was an odd thing. Like one one of the people that were working for the Cryptic Corporation, they 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 were the residents were organizing a, a new record at that time. Uh, it was kind of it was a musical. And it was a, a musical that they were constructing about stories from the Bible. And what they were doing... Well, this might be after it then. This is early 2000s? And no, it was, it was in the 90s. It was? Yeah. Because uh, me and Raymond saw this. My memory is so terrible. Well, the tour came later, but the, but oh, the record so was... that's why. The record was interesting. You know, what they would do is they would just hire, like, lots of singers. They, they would get different characters for all their songs. Yeah. And so we, they'd have different characters come in and sing... And they, um, uh, you know, the Cryptic Corporation asked me to come in and as as a, as a singer, as a vocalist. They wanted me to play the part of, of yeah, Jesus. How'd you meet them? As Jesus Christ. They're so cryptic. Uh, <laughs> mm, <laughs> you wrote well, them a letter and said no, you could no, sign. No, no, no. I'm one of the people that were that were working on uh, that was working on the project. She uh, she she knew me. And oh, had, okay. And had, 
had recommended me as as a potential character, and um, potential, guy. A potential like, yeah, character. Potential character. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I came in. Uh, they asked me to be Jesus Christ. So, yeah, so, of course. So I came <laughs> in. What else? And, and so they had the, they had these these songs for me to sing, and um, it was pretty it was pretty tough role, you know, because the song. Who's the one in the? What's his name? Weber. Weber. Was Ian, Gill- Ian Gillian. The Deep Purple guy. No, I don't know. Da, 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 da. Oh, the Jesus Christ Super. Oh, oh, oh! I knew was a Deep oh, Purple. Oh, right, right. Well, now uh, we weren't doing Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I'm <laughs> we just trying doing, to like parallel. Universe. We were doing customized interpretations. Oh, they're trippers. Yeah. Me and Raymond saw. It. Yeah, yeah, and so the songs. Uh, House at Blue. Yeah. Well, the songs that actually the, the Jesus Christ songs didn't actually make the record. Uh, for one reason or another, state Old Testament. Uh, well, I think the songs may have been potentially just too shocking. The, the The lyrical content was was so. I have to say, I mean, it was I, when I when I saw the lyrics and what I was going to, and and it was interesting because they asked, they knew I was from Tennessee, so they asked me to sing in this sort of like Bill Monroe kind of yeah. little, little boy falsetto voice, kind of hillbilly falsetto, and. And the lyrics were particularly vulgar and, and like particularly crass, like yeah. really, really bad. And um, and it was all 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 the all the songs were were dealing with with the Book of Revelations and the and the end of the world. And it was really amazing writing. And so I did all that. I tracked all those. They were Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, they're they're yeah they're from uh, from uh, uh, deeper than you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know the. Uh, the, the the writing was amazing. Anyway, so it was a great experience. It was funny. I was getting married at that time, and all that that session took place the day before I got married <laughs> in San course. Francisco. I was living in New York at that time. But um, but anyway, you know, I mean, cryptic cryptic stayed in touch with me. You know, they 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 got the record organized and out, and then uh, this person who had who had recommended me to do the thing. Had at a certain point, I guess they needed needed some kind of drumming on some stuff. And at a certain point, she had said, "Well, you know, you know what? What he, you know, he normally he's a drummer." Yeah, yeah. Know? And they were like, "Oh, well, that's perfect." So, <laughs> so cryptic got me involved in, in in doing that. So I became more and more deeply involved in, in what they were doing uh, instrumentally. And and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you met Andrew Feldman on a bus. I met Eric Drew Feldman on on a on a, on a on city on a city bus in San Francisco because at the time we were both living on Hate Street, and so I think we were both just going That's home. A, look, we got the end of the second hour here. Oh God! All right. Spiel's flying. <laughs> Thank God but you people, have a long hold tight. It's a <laughs> July five, two thousand eleven. Watch for Pedro show. Hang tight for more from Mr. Larry. Hour three. Uh, July 5th, 2011, it's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro show.
Watt for Pedro Show, third hour. Started off with uh, Hope from Morris. Yeah, while you guys were listening to that, uh, Mr. Larry, we were talking about Hope via music. And then we heard Green Rain by uh, Shugo Tokumaru. And then I'm Getting Sick of You by Les Butcherettes. It's got a wild drummy. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Beetroot. It's just this Italian band, Beetroot. Maybe they're not. Yeah, they are. In fact, but they got the guy from uh, International Noise Conspiracy singing with them, Dennis. Okay. But the, this cat, he had a, he had a San Diego band called Locust. Oh, yeah. Wild drummer. He's playing with this lady named okay. Terry. Yeah. Now, Terry was born in Colorado, but grew up in Mexico. I got to do some gigs with her. She's incredible. She plays with a, a, a butcher smock on, you know. Oh, really? Gun. She does guitar, organs, and sings, and she's so intense. Wow. She's great. And uh, they butcherettes. Okay. Jonathan, the bass man, just a trio. And then uh, Witch of Endor, which is uh, from Hobo Combo, which was a uh, it's a tribute band to Moondog. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, yeah, and this cat, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the drummer man, is Andrea Belfi. And Andrea Belfi is... Uh, Remember at the beginning of the show I played Stefano Palia? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is the drummer man for El Sonio de Manayo, the band I have with these two Italian guys. And Andrea Belfi lives in Berlin. Oh. And he's just uh, doing a residency for a skateboard company. Oh, but putting on music and, yeah. you know, so huh. chasing his thing. I remember uh, having them on the show when I, I did a tour with them, six gigs, and then we made an album. That's going to be out in the fall. Uh-huh. And uh, maybe they're 20 years younger than me. Uh -huh. But uh, I got into this having them on the show so they could talk about their journey through music. Yeah. And he, uh, some of the first things he said he heard was Green Day. And then we went to some music and he said, man, kind of a little embarrassing. I'm like, uh, but uh, Green Day. I said, look, man, everybody's got different ways of coming in yeah, and stuff. Yeah, Don't yeah. worry. So did they talk much about Moondog? Did they know much about Moondog? This whole record's about it. Okay, really? Yeah, yeah. It's it's called Hobo Combo. Yeah. He, I don't know. Maybe he might live close to where you do in Berlin. I'll find well, out. Well, they, they never met him, though. They never met no, him. No, no, they're younger people. Okay. Because they, they're, they're these cats, uh, uh, Stefano and Andrea, both... Uh, avant-garde. They know lots about music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're not as... Yeah. Uh, a thug like is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. You know, like the last for the last nine years or so, I've been working with this uh, Swiss singer. His name's Stefan Eicher, mm. and he is the godson of of Moondog. He, oh. was, he was very close friends with Moondog. So I got to put you in touch with him. Yeah, yeah. I got this whole album of it. I've played a lot of it on my show and stuff. And uh, he's a uh, Andrea is uh, just more than a drummer. He's a composer too. <laughs> you know, he's into his kind of soft machine and Robert Wyatt and. Yeah, makes stuff like this. And well, Ste Stefan was very close with him, and and he actually uh, organized a, a lot of uh, concerts for Moondog in, in the latter part yeah. of his life. Uh, he he organized some some big full concerts in in France and and Switzerland, and they were very close. Really fascinating. Oh these yeah, shows yeah. are great. I have these shows. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, they'd be interested. I'll, I'll flow you the info. Info. Andrea just recent to Berlin. He's uh, from uh, Verona. Uh, from Verona. Verona, yeah. 
Okay. He's a great cat, man. Huh. Torn with them guys. They cook for me every day. Nice. Had a prac pad was <laughs> out in the country. Because you were saying about the Italy thing, but man, yeah, yeah. well, my mom's people are from there, so I have oh, a yeah. little connect. Okay. But t- t- when I was there, man, the, the gigs I did and the recording, when I was in the studio, the guys, the recorders cooked for me. When yeah. I did the radio show yeah. in Tuscany with uh, Jacobo, they had some cats play on. Uh, horns on our thing and, oh, and yeah. we did the radio show they're cooking well now I had more men cooking for me on that tour well now when when, when i work on records in berlin we do a similar thing but it's a barbecue thing and because okay. we've got the studio in my house and i've got a big place there where, where we can barbecue and so you know normally if, if things are going well yeah <laughs> if it's going well then you know the engineer you know stays with, with with what's going on there and then i get the grills going and i get the bar so the end of the session it's That's barbecue happened. time, yeah. It's very That's nice. Happened. It's beautiful. There. These cats, yeah, they were just—they really neat. I, I want to tour with them when this album comes out. Uh, back to the journey. Well, the journey. <laughs> well, we were talking about the residents and the Bible stories. Well, and and swans. And now I mean, Michael. Yes. Yeah, at a certain point, I you know around there at the end of the nineties, I, I moved to New York City, and uh, I, and I kept working with Michael. Uh, uh, I think I made seven records with with Michael. Uh, as we, we decided, to, he decided to shut the Swans down and and turn it into this new thing called the Angels of Light. Yeah. And so I, I continued doing that with him. Um, but uh, and I, I made some interesting projects in New York. I worked on a few films there. Um, but I I, ha- I had my my sights set on moving to Europe really and um, and I finally did I, I moved over to Berlin and uh, when? Uh, I moved over about seven years ago and yeah uh, two thousand so from New York so. yeah from New York from and um, I got over there I, I made a record uh, a duet record with my best buddy over there with Thomas Wiedler, the drummer from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds yeah and. He was working with this incredible engineer who I hit it off with, and and so I I had a, there was a band in New York that wanted me to produce a record for them, and they wanted to do like an orchestral record, and I knew that was like financially devastating to try and do something like that in New York City. So I said, look, you know, let, let's go Boy, to let's go to Berlin, and what, what, what was your first producing thing? It was that record, really. Okay. I mean, well, I had done one film, one film score in New York. Where right, I, where, with Egg. No, not with Egg. It was, oh, my, another it, was, one. It, was, it was my own thing. No, the, the Egg one was in L.A. Yeah, the Egg one was, yeah. was in L.A. But I'd done one in, in New York where I organized the whole thing and had a 21-piece orchestra. And, and was oh, so in, you knew about the orchestra thing in New York? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's where I learned what all... What was this film? Uh, it's a movie called Applejack. And... And it was a pretty. Com- is, yeah, is yeah. Uh, well, no, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's about this, this little boy. But uh, uh, anyway, it was like you know the guy, the director really had some, some tall, dream. You know, he had some really complex dreams about what he wanted. He wanted sort of like, he wanted like a Burbank st- stage orchestra kind of thing, combined with like hillbilly bluegrass with science fiction space effects and stuff all this mixed together so it was a pretty tall order it was a real complicated thing to try and design and and i did it but i i needed 21 musicians to do it yeah and uh, and as i was mentioning to do that in new york city was it was like a nightmare financially and i and i finally got the the project done it took several years and um 
and I, after that, I, I just realized, like, you know, it's just too hard to to uh, try and mount a production like that in New York. You know, it's just so. Uh, anyway, so they they had also this band had a big production kind of in 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 uh, in mind, and I was like, the only way we're really going to be able to do this is to go somewhere else, and and, I, and I, so. The, one of the guys in the group had actually grown up in Berlin, so he was really gung ho for it. So, so I took them over there, and we made a record there. And we all we got over there. We all got apartments, and we all just stayed. We all, we all did. And um, so I was going back and forth between New York for a few years, and finally, the juxtaposition was just too much to to take anymore. And finally, I just I closed my my studio down in New York, and then I closed my apartment in New York, and I just moved everything. You had a studio in New York. Yeah, I had a I studio. Didn't know that. Had a studio on Mott Street. Little <laughs> Italy. Just just south of Houston. Little Italy. Yeah, yeah, very nice there. I was sharing. I was right next door. My neighbors were blonde redhead. We we were. Yeah, the, yeah I we, did some gigs with them, the two Italian brothers. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we we the were lady, down. Lady uh, had a horse step on her face. Yeah. Well, I I think she actually broke a leg. I don't, oh, th- I don't I think she had, really. I think she had some. Oh, really? They were really? telling me I was doing yeah, a gig, yeah. and she told me this story, and I was oh, like, "Oh my I, god!" I, she did have a big accident with a horse, I know, but but yeah, they were my neighbors. We were down in the basement next to each other, and um, they liked to work during the day, and I worked during the night. So uh, <laughs> that's that's the way we did it. Wow! And, uh, so in Berlin, you you make a studio. Yeah, yeah, I have a studio in the house where I live in Berlin, and um, did, you, did you get that going right away? I got it going right away. Um, I mean, did basically that orchestral thing. Yeah, um, yeah. This this Mel's record here, uh, we we did that there, and um, the first track on that record, which is sort of more of a Turkish kind of thing with a big Turkish orchestra kind of arrangement, I, yeah. I did all that in in, in Berlin, and. Um, um, yeah, it's it's a really. Well, what'd you do there? As soon as you got there, of course you did this project. Yeah, I, well, we finished that record, and then once people found out that I was living there, and there was you know there's a lot of people moving there, a lot of people that are coming to Berlin to to, to make projects. Yeah. You know, because I'm not the only one who came up with this idea. And there's people coming from yeah, China. <laughs> people are coming from China and yeah. Italy and Sweden and and Argentina and yeah. all all over the place. People are coming there, and it's it's an affordable or it's it's probably one of the most affordable places to put something together like that or if you want to you know i know i know clothing designers and architects and painters and and chore- choreographers and you know choreographers and you know like people, choreographers is choreogra- okay. I'm, I'm sorry okay. I'm, 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 that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a tennessee coming out and, uh, you know i mean i, I know I, uh, lots of people doing different kinds of things but uh, people that need some space you know if they need if they need big space to design what it is they're going to make yeah. that's a problem you know it's like space is expensive oh, Manhattan, yeah yeah or in manhattan or, yeah. or in paris or, or yeah you know. big town yeah so a lot of people are, are so coming Cal. there because you can get a big raw space for really cheap right and um or you can rehearse a band or you can record a string section or you can you know build a big thing or you know put a put a big ballet together or whatever i mean it's like people can can find a way to do it you yeah. know so um it's it's an interesting place to be actually so I, I, it's it's been really productive for me i i've i've made i think i've made 10 10 records there since i've been there so and i i've been you know i started working more with with uh, a lot of french artists and um, but, but remember what you were saying about what you told that teacher in college? 
I want to be a performer. Yeah, yeah. So you must have started doing some performing when you got to Berlin. Well, yeah. I mean, it was mostly, I mean, when I moved over there, I was mostly working with, uh, at that time, I was mostly working with French artists. And I was touring a lot in, in France. I started working with this, this guy, Stefan Eicher from Switzerland. And Stefan's very successful in France, and he tours a lot. So I was mostly going down there and traveling around and, and doing live shows with him. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, and when you spend time in Paris, you meet all these other people. And, and I started working with a lot of different uh, French artists. And, uh, you know, and I, so I get involved with these people, and they would, you know, they would want to make a new record. And, of course, trying to do it in Paris, it's super expensive. It's really complicated. And all the studios are booked up way in advance. Yeah. And so I started telling people about coming to Berlin to make records. So they started doing it. People started coming you know, on the train or whatever, and come up there and stay. What about this performing? Well, this this, this is the first time uh, I got to meet you and be conscious of it. Uh, right, right, right. Because <laughs> you know what? I probably did see you at Paul Rossler's pad. Well, yeah, it's certainly possible. Okay, yeah, you, you're so probably, Alzheimer laden. I would have been sleeping on the couch. Yeah, there. yeah, there was many bad, <laughs> many shifts took. Hanging out many in the folks kitchen. took many shifts at that. Yeah, and there was yeah. a lot of cats I met there that I can't remember. It's not their fault. No, it's my no. fault. Well, no, you know, I mean, Paul was a really open person. You know, yeah, he, you know he's, he takes care of people. You know? But this here, yeah, this because I saw you cats open for Stooges. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We first time we we played with the uh, with the Stooges in Berlin. I think mm -hmm. it was it was two and a half years ago or something when when, when Ron was in the band and. And uh, you guys came through there, and we did we did all the German shows. We played with you in Berlin and Hamburg and, 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 Hamburg and, and also outside of uh, somewhere down around Cologne. I think it was uh, the old capital, Bonn. Yeah, it was down somewhere down in there. I think it was Bonn. It was in wasn't the it? west. Yeah, it was the southwest, and we did that. But yeah, her name's Jesse Evans. And I met her actually in the same house where where where, I, where I'm living now, but yeah. it, you know there were two studios in this house, and yeah. she had a band going at the time, and they were mixing a record with with the engineer I'd been working with. So I met her there, and um, they they uh, they had an electronic uh, band. It was her and and Bettina Coster from Malaria, and uh, they they needed a drummer for a show. And they asked me to do a show, and uh, so we did some rehearsals, and that went really well. And, and I did some shows with them in, in the United States. But Jessie had been working on her own uh, material, and she'd been Jessie had passed through several bands before. Where, she, where's she original? What town? She, she's from Mendocino, but she yeah. uh, she had a couple. She she had a band called Subtonics. I don't know if you ever knew about Subtonics. Yeah, I remember those. That was a really really good like vicious all girl punk rock band. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, really influenced by the Ramones, but but a little more like. Uh, Vampire vicious. I mean, really, really, really great vampire band. Vicious. Really <laughs> vampire. They were killer. They they were a great band. And um, after that, she had a band called The Vanishing, which was also uh, a really great punk band. And um, you know, so she moved to Berlin, and she started this band with Bettina. Um, you know, they made one record together. They called it Auto Nervous. It's <laughs> a great name. And. Uh, Anyway, they asked me to play drums with them, and I did yeah. that. And she was like, look, you know, I'm working on these songs of my own, and I really want to try and just start doing things under my own name. So we put, uh, we put this show together, 
and uh, she had a lot of offers from uh, booking agents all around the world and a lot of interest in this and and so we just put it together and started doing it talking duet yeah just as two people and uh you know she's a singer and plays saxophone and she's a great dancer so it's a very high energy show and um uh, she had a lot of interest in, in Mexico, and, and uh, you know, when we first on met... On the record here. Yeah. Yeah, that, that record is produced by... Uh, have you ever heard of the Nortec Collective from Tijuana? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the guy who produced this record is, is Pepe Malked from, that, from the Nortec. That's kind of like a... Yeah, it's more electronic. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's... my uh, brother Matt, when I do my show on Pedro, my guy I do with brother Matt is knows all about the cats he's playing yeah they're inside. fantastic they, they do like a they're like a what cross are you called Toby Dammit here yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah well we yeah. got to get into that yeah, yeah. What? well when did you start being called that well that kind of started around the the mid 90s or so but I was spending a lot of time in you're Paris. not on the, on the egg records is Toby no Dammit. no no I was still I was on still the swan records no I'm Larry See? and all that stuff but I, I started working with this this guy in Paris his name's Bertrand Bergala he's a very popular producer in in France and he has he's had his own record company in France called Tricatel for for many many years and it's it was I was a big fan of everything he was doing and he's an amazing musician and arranger and incredible mm-hmm. bass player and we became best friends and uh, he started bringing me to Paris all the time to play on on records for him people he was producing and commercials and all kinds of stuff and at a certain point like he said look I, I've like uh, trademarked some some weird names he, he was like putting out all these weird compilation records like Tricotel like compilation records with all these different singers and he he was making so much music he was just making up names for people like false names and ph- phony pseudonyms yeah. and, and he was having a lot phony of pseudonyms. yeah yeah i mean just well, just real make, well he was i mean he was <laughs> making up pseudonyms and like you know calling people all different kinds of names and sure, re- sure. registering them as as artists and stuff and they never existed and all this kind of stuff <laughs> and so um so one of the names he had he had trademarked the name Toby Dammit, which was this this old Edgar Allan Poe character from 1853. And, really, and, what yeah, story? It's a story called "Never Bet the Devil Your Head." Oh yeah, it's a short story. I know I've read all his stuff when I was younger. I, it's a rare story, but it's something you might find in a collection sure, of short I, stories. I have a thing of all his stuff. It's really great. And I'm anyway, frog. I know all his stuff. Yeah. I, mean, I can't remember it all. Well, so there's a Toby Dammit there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, some years... Is it like, like that with the two M's? Yeah. And, you know, uh, later, in the 60s, there had been a, like a French trilogy that was made with, with, with three different directors, and, and Fellini was one of the directors. And he had, it, was a, it was a trilogy of uh, short films inspired by Edgar Allan Poe stories okay. called Histoire Extraordinaire. And Fellini chose to, to do the Never Bet you, the Devil Your Head. And he called the film Toby Dammit. Terrence Stamp plays the character Toby Dammit in that film. Uh, anyway, Bertrand had, had registered this name, and he's like, you know, he wanted me to make a solo record for him, you know, for his label. And um, he's like, you've got to be, I want you to be this, this, this Toby Dammit character. And so he told me all about it and talked me into it, and we thought it was funny. And so we, we did it. We made this record. And... Um, so, you know, it came out, and there was a lot of interest. Like, uh, there was a, other music in New York. They had a record company 
you know, the record store or the music in New York. They had a record company and they and they wanted to they released it. So and they and they hired a publicity agent for the whole thing. So it, this whole thing just kind of snowballed. Yeah. And before I knew it, I, I was this new persona persona and and I just sort of ran with it and you know everyone seemed to be having fun with it and it just kept going on and on and then I started working with with all these artists in France uh, all of them top five you know like a, a lot of very popular records and they all were listing me as Toby Dammit and it just kept going on and on and on and, and I, I just I couldn't stop it you know and I just sort of just let it go you know and someone made me a website and I just thought well pfft, that's that's it just, okay. it's just going like that. So, <laughs> so you know, whatever. But yeah, so I, you know, when I met Jesse in Berlin, uh, it was the same sort of scenario there. They were mixing their record in that house, and I was the I was the grill meister on the barbecue yeah. outside, and so we were out talking over the barbecue grill, and she was asking me, and she was like, "Well, what do you miss the most about the United States?" And I told her, "Well." I don't really, I said, I think the thing that I miss the most about the United States is actually Latino culture because there's not very much Latino, <laughs> there's not very much Latino culture in, in, in Berlin. And not even in Spain. Yeah, and, and well, of course, well, no, yeah, I brought I mean, some, I make my own chili sauce. I brought some yeah. there. I made men cry. You know, out I of, never had it. Well, out of all the years of living in California, you know, I, I got, yeah. you know, I, I was always living in Latino neighborhoods, and, and, yeah. and I love the food and the music and the people so much and yeah. everything about it. And it's like, I really miss that. And she was like, well, me too. And we, we agreed, like, and, you know, we had both kind of left the United States for more or less for political reasons. And, and, and you know, we didn't really have a whole lot of interest in going back anytime soon for anything other than Latino culture, honestly. And um, and we were like, well, you know, we we you know we should just go to Mexico. We were just thinking, we, well, we should, you know, we could just go to Mexico and bypass the United States completely, you know, and 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 just do that. And, you know, we 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 knew that we were going to make this record together, and we were like trying to think, like we didn't want to do it in Berlin. And we were trying to think, we wanted to go someplace different and, and outside of, you know. And we just thought, why don't we go to Mexico and make the record in Mexico and, and, and get into this whole thing. And um, so we, you know, we organized everything. We kind of figured it out, like, where we were going to go. And uh, I'd met this guy, Pepe Mokt, uh online, actually. I was a big fan of Nortec. And, uh, yeah. and we started writing back and forth together. And, um, Is he Tijuana? He lives in Tijuana. And um, so I said, look, you know, I, I'm going to make this record with this girl, Jesse Evans. You know, this is kind of like, these are the demos of what we've done. And check out these bands she's worked in and see what you think. Would you be interested to do it? And, um, you know, he checked it out. And he wrote back. He's like, I'd love to do this. Like, why don't you guys come to Tijuana and let's do it? And I said, well, look, we're going to go through Mexico City first. And we're going to record some stuff. We want to we tour. We want to tour in Mexico and kind of re record as we're as we're traveling. We record in motel rooms and all this kind of stuff, and do it kind of homemade. Yeah. And um, and so that's the way we did it. We you know we we, we toured a couple uh, we toured a couple of months around Mexico. We drove about five thousand miles together, and just set you know we we built a portable studio, and we drove around in a car and we just broke the studio down and, and moved it to wherever we were going. We'd record vocals, you know, in, in a motel room like this, and um, you know, and everywhere we'd go, we had drums. Motel? 
Well, yeah, hotels. This is a hotel. This is more of a hotel. But um, the truth is, is, we 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 were we were recording in motels. If you read my (laughs) diaries. Yeah, this is what is known as fancy. Family. We, you know, we we met these beautiful people in Mexico City that had a yeah. that had a uh, that had a bed and breakfast that we were staying in, and they knew. Oh, you were telling this yeah. the Burroughs man. Uh, yeah, and they they knew that we were looking for a place to record, and we couldn't find a, a cool place that we liked, and finally they they said, look, you know, we have a laundry room up on top of the building that's kind of you know it's 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 vacant, you know, there's there's two rooms up there. Why don't you take a look at it? We went up there. It was on the roof of their building, and uh, it was like two bedrooms. And, uh, you know, they were like, you can just have it, you know. just Well, we were going to stay there for a couple of months, so we, we basically built this place out. You know, we set up mattresses along the walls and, and blankets everywhere and kind of like muted yeah, the room out, dampened the room out, and we just turned that into our little studio. They gave it to us for free. Cool. And, uh and we did. We recorded everything up there. It was fantastic, and um, we had and a good time. Tijuana Cat, he mixed it. He mixed it. Yeah, we we drove all the way from you know we went as far down to Acapulco where we recorded in John Wayne's house. <laughs> we we played a gig in Mexico City and we met these kids that that were huge fans of Jesse's. She has a big following in Mexico and. Um, they came to see us twice, and the second time they introduced themselves and started talking to us. And they said, "Look, we have a house in in Acapulco. If you if you want to come down and stay with us, you know, you'd be our guests, and please, you know, consider yeah. it." Well, in the end, uh, Nortec got a little busy, and they postponed the whole mixing thing for a couple of weeks. And we were trying to think, like, well, where could we go? We've been in Mexico City for a couple of months. Maybe we should go down and see those kids in Acapulco. And uh, so we contacted them, and, and we decided to go down there. And Jesse was like, look, they said something about they had John Wayne's old house. And I did some research online, and look at these photos. I think it's this place. And, of course, it looked like a paradise. And I said, no, that's impossible. It can't be that place. It's probably like something around there, but surely not that. So we drove down to Acapulco, and we met them at night in the center of Acapulco, and they took us up the mountain and we drove up and up and up and up and up, and we finally we came up to this place, this closed gate, and someone brought them the key, and we went into this estate, and it was John Wayne's <laughs> old house. And the story was uh, the man, the guy, his, his sister is a caretaker of this yeah. house, and uh, it's not open to the public. And he had taken uh, a week off of work, and he and his girlfriend were going to stay there with, with, with Jesse and myself. And, and they gave us John Wayne's bedroom. And the story that we got was, uh, you know, in the 50s, uh, John Wayne had bought property down there. Maybe you've heard about this, you know. Like when he I went know he was living in Orange County. He got a minesweeper converted to his boat and he was living in Newport Beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know about that place too, but he had uh in the 50s he had gone down to Acapulco. It was very fashionable at that time. And he bought, you know, if you think of Acapulco as being a cove like a sea. Yeah. The very top of that sea is sticking out into the Pacific Ocean. And basically he bought the the tip of that sea, the peninsula yeah. that that's sticking out the furthest into yeah. the Pacific Ocean. That was his property, his estate. And he had a, a custom bungalow built right on the cliff with a swimming pool, with a big swimming pool right on the edge of the cliff. I mean, it was unbelievable, like a paradise. Yeah. And um, uh, beautiful place. And, and I, when he passed away, 
he, uh, I believe his son went down to Acapulco and immediately sold the entire estate and took out his personal belongings mm-hmm. and basically just left, left everything as it was. And, and the people that bought the place basically bought it and then yeah. they locked it and they never touched it. It's like frozen in time. They never wow. sold it or rented it out or turned it into a museum or nothing. They just kept it like it was. Yeah. So all of his old furniture is there, everything. Wow. Everything. It's just like how he left it. So we went in there, and <laughs> and it was ours. They just gave it to us. They said, you can stay here for a week. And uh, we set up our studio in his bedroom, and we stayed in his bedroom, in his bed. And and Jesse and I, you know, we, we tracked every day or every night, and uh, we drank micheladas all day, and it made micheladas, you know, there are photos yeah. there of him and Dean Martin yeah. drinking in that kitchen. It was all the same, all, you know, he, he, I mean, it was, it was, inc- it was a real trip, it was like paradise, um, it was, it was painful was to, water to leave. Was water in the pool? Oh, absolutely, okay. it was all, everything was, was, was fine, they never painted it or re- renovated or nothing, it was, yeah. it was rotting, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but it was beautiful. So we recorded a lot of stuff there, and then we drove from there all the way up to Tijuana, which is like a three- or four-day drive. Yeah, yeah. And we drove across the desert. It was fantastic. And um, we got to Tijuana, and we set up shop with Pepe there. And um, I'd never met him in person before, and he's one of the most beautiful people I've ever met in my life. He's a great guy and an amazing musician yeah. and um, an absolute genius. And... Um, and so he, we stayed in a motel just down the down the hill from his house, and we would record stuff in the in the motel and walk up to his house and give him the give him the tracks, you know. Yeah. Like we were just we had a we had a system going. He was working with a fantastic engineer there in Tijuana, who who Lewis, uh, who is who is blind, and uh, we we wanted to do a lot of the songs in in Spanish, and uh, Jesse wanted to work with someone who could. Uh, be a vocal coach for for her in Espanol, so we worked with Lewis and um, and he recorded all of her stuff. It was in, and at his house. It was an amazing experience, and the record came out great. It was really a wonderful adventure. Let's play some. All right. Porque mi corazón está 
contigo Cuando yo corro, tú corres conmigo Cuando yo me río, te ríes conmigo Pedro show. Uh, wanted to play you some uh, Jesse Evans music there. What Larry was uh, talking about is uh, a Mexican adventure. We had a uh, blood and silver. That almost brings us up to date. Well, that that that's the main project that I've been working on the last several years. I, I think Jesse and I kind of started this this project about five years ago, and she is. She's been playing all over the world, you know. We we play in Brazil and Russia and Norway and and uh, Mexico. We've we've toured Mexico four times and we play almost everywhere around the world, but but not very much in the United States. We only we've only done shows in or Canada. Yeah, yeah. We've only done shows in California, really. Yeah. We did one. We played one time on the East Coast. We we did a live show on WFMU. Great station. Yeah, yeah, and th- and there there are good. Good friends and supporters Chris there. Turner. We said we'd rather play there than play a live show <laughs> in New York. So, so we went through there and, and played on their station. But we we haven't really worked that much in the United States. But uh, she's she's got a lot of guts, and we um, we travel all over the world doing that. And of course, that's her. It's it's her show that 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 brought us together with the with the, with the Stooges. That's brought, right. Brought me working back Speaking together. Speaking of which. We didn't say, but uh, Scotty got put in a hospital for hurts on his stomach. And now he's better. He had surgery. He came out, but he's got to heal up. So that's why Larry's playing here and uh, saving the day. The decision was made to do the gigs, and two days he came. Two days of prac, people. Came in uh, doing the throwdown uh, Thursday we're going to play here in Lisbon, and then uh, Saturday's the last of this leg in Valencia, Catalan part of Spain. Mm-hmm. And then uh, come back on another one. I think first time I'll be to Corsica. Have you ever been there? I've been there four times. I've been there two. Wow. Ta- I've been there two times with Jesse. And we were there about a month ago. <laughs> wow! It's beautiful. Different than France. 
It's another part of France. Yeah, it's actually France has got so many different regions. Mine's me yeah. the U.S. in a way. Well, it's not like one land. I, I'll come out and say it. it. It's it's not France, is is what they would like they would like me to say. So, oh. so but it's it's completely different from France. It's it's ruled by France, but it, you'll oh. see you'll see that it is not like France. It's it's its own place. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful island, and uh, the people are amazing, and the food is incredible. Well, we do play in France, Carcassonne. Yeah, that's which is also, beautiful by Spain. Yeah, have you been to Carcassonne? Driving, not playing. Well, that castle and shit. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's it amazing. really is. Well, you know the thing about the, the the Stooges thing. You know, I'm I know it was short notice, but I'm not a I'm not a stranger to these to these songs. And I'm not Remember a stranger. Remember the journey. Yeah, the and music I'm, journey was and a I'm, big part. And I'm not a stranger to Scotty either. You know, yeah. I, I I grew up listening to Scotty, and uh, I mean, I've I've known his style and and specifically what he's done in these songs all my life. And and when when we when we started doing these shows with Jesse with you guys, you know, like I I you know I was at the side of the stage the whole time. The Stooges were playing, and I, I realized that was my chance, finally, to watch him play. Like I'd listened to him all my youth, but I had the chance to actually watch him from from behind, and and I did that. I'm glad very much, especially now that I actually did it because I learned a lot. I, w- I wanted to watch and just kind of learn and see what I'd been doing wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and really learn like see how it was really supposed to be done. And um, I learned a lot watching him. You know, I met him, I think, I met him in 1990. I met him and Ron together uh, the first time I came through Detroit with Iggy. And uh, they were coming to the show, and I was super nervous. And uh, they had come to the sound check, and there was a bar next door, and they invited us to come over to the bar after the sound check. So um, I went over next door and sat next to Scott then and, and was drinking beer with him then. And any time we ever went through the Detroit area, they always came by, and I always hung out with them. And, um, you know, so I've known Scotty for a while, and uh, we had really good times on these on these shows, uh, you know, when Ron was over here touring. And, um, and then also this last time we played together with you last year in Paris, and I had more time to hang out with Scott. And... Uh, when I got the call that he was in the hospital, you know, I mean, I was shocked. Yeah. I mean, I was glad that he was okay. I mean, the news was positive that he was actually fortunate enough to, to be in good hands. And I think he's going to have a good recovery. And, but when, uh, you know, when, when the people, you know, when the, the powers that be said that I had to do this, I realized that I had to do it, I mean, not just for myself. Number one, I had to do it for Scotty. Because I knew I was able, I was capable of doing this, and I would, I would, I knew that you know Scotty was worried about letting it, you know, they had told me that he was worried about letting everybody down. So I realized, like, if I come in and do this, he won't let anybody down. Uh, no one's going to be let down. The shows are going to be good, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, whatever, carry the torch for him. And I know that I could do it. And the other thing was, you know, I, I had a long separation from, from Iggy. After nine years of really hard work, we had a long separation where we didn't speak. And uh, I got a call from Iggy, you know, asking me to do this too. 
and and I I thought, well, this has been a long time, and if he's calling me, this first this first phone call I'd had from him in twelve years, you know. So I thought I thought this is it, you know. Like I don't have a choice. There's there's no choice in this matter. Like I have to step up to the to the plate and swing the bat, you know. And yeah. I I have to pull this off. Yeah. For 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 those reasons, you know, I have to I have to support Scott. I have to support all you guys because it's a family. You know, it's like it's kind of a tight 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 thing here. So it's it's a family, and it's uh you know it's like just had to get get it together for the right reasons. You know, um, of course it could have been anybody coming in to do this, but this was like a, keeping things on the inside, and and, uh, and I think it's for the right reasons. <laughs> maybe, maybe it could have been anybody. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad it's you. Well, it thanks had, for being on the show. Well, I'm, I'm, thanks for asking. I'm you glad. You know, to me, very interesting, very inspiring story of a musical journey. Righteous. It is a musical journey. It's uh, something that just you know, it just started, and it just I can't I can't stop it. You know, and I just keep following it and stuff. Every year, new things seem to come out of the blue, and you know, just uh, you know, just keep keep going for it i mean it's it, like i told you before it's the only playing playing drums playing music it's like the only thing that i've ever been good at and it's the only thing that ever came naturally to me yeah and uh i grew up really poor and when i realized that i was good at something i had to grab a hold of it and stick with it you know and i've done the same thing since i was i guess since i was 12 you know so uh i just realized like you know Soon as you, soon as you learn something that you're good at, you know when it's obvious, you know, you know, stick to it and believe in it, you know, yeah. and and nurture it and try and try and get better at it, you know, and and uh, do all that you can with it, you know. If you could sum it all up in one word, what would word would that be? One word. Next. It's <laughs> <laughs> been the Live from Pedro show, July five, two thousand eleven. Thank you, Gilmer. Keep your powder dry.